Hey guys, so for this podcast, I have Dr. Aaron Horshig on. Um, he is the founder of Squat University. So go ahead and check him out on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, uh, his website. He has a great, great, great library of information. Um, as well as for this podcast, I have Hella Mark the Body Harley. Um, he's co-hosting on this episode. So uh, we yeah. just had a wide variety of topics going on. Um, we had to cut the interview a little bit short because his uh, laptop was uh, on low battery, but we did cover, like I said, a great amount of uh, topics. So I hope you guys enjoy this as much as I did. Yeah, so for, for those of you out there that don't know about where I'm at right now, I'm a sports physical therapist who basically teaches the world through my platform with Squat University about lifting mechanics, ways in which we can improve our performance, but then also stay healthy and work on small aches or pains ourselves. Um, I first got involved in strength conditioning and just lifting. I think the first time I touched that bar, uh, barbell was probably when I was 13 years old, like you said, somewhere between eighth grade and high school is when I first got involved growing up with football and then... Uh, you know, you get into that summer weights uh, class and actually learn how to lift for the first time. And I feel, feel very blessed because I was put into a great situation um, here in Eureka, Missouri, which is a small town outside of St. Louis. Our high school actually had some of the, the best equipment in any you know high school around here. We had like eight Aleco bars and a lot of platforms for Olympic lifts and stuff like that. So I was put into a great situation where I was able to learn from some awesome coaches that I still have good, great contact with today. And then, um, yeah, I just sort of grew up being one of those muscle nerds. I loved being in the weight room all the time, even though my performance athletically wasn't as gifted as I would have liked to be. I just always enjoyed being in the weight room and learning from coaches and things like that. When I got into college, I pursued a degree in exercise science because I could just learn more about the body and how it works from a performance standpoint. But then, like any athlete out there, I always kept on getting injured. You know, there isn't a, a year that went by that I wasn't dealing with some own aches and pains of my own. Um, I ended up joining the Olympic weightlifting team at Truman State University my freshman year. Had my first competition in that sport, and uh, I guess I would have been 18 years old back in 2005. And then just continued along with that for a long time. Ended up getting uh, my doctorate in physical therapy from the University of Missouri in 2012. And quickly moved out to Kansas City where I started working at a sports performance physical therapy clinic. And uh, yeah, I guess you could say the rest is history. I just sort of went all into the performance physical therapy sort of sector where our goal is to to work with athletes of any background any um, you know level within sports and help them not only get out of pain but sort of maximize their foundation so that when they do go back into performance training they have um, something well to stand on top of and uh, decrease their risk for future injuries that's awesome. I, I really love how everything's so polished. I know you've said that story a million times. That, <laughs> that, that was great. So thank you for that. Uh, I guess You're I want to also ask you as well, how did you get started with the, with the whole page of Squat University and when did it start gaining traction and, and what did you think of all the momentum that you gained from the beginning to where you're at right now? Yeah, so when I first got out of school, I always knew that I enjoyed teaching. I enjoyed talking to the world, um, but especially at a different level than most physical therapists. So um, like most of you guys know, physical therapy is a doctorate level profession. So there's a lot of extremely smart people that are my contemporaries. And I've always been sort of that weightlifter first, that strength coach first ever before I was a physical therapist. So I always felt like I had a different way of speaking to other people. I didn't really talk on that extremely educated uh, stage just because it didn't flow naturally to me. Mm -hmm. 
So when I got out of school, um, I started seeing these sort of deja vu like scenarios continue to pop up. So when athletes would come to me with any sort of pain, this could be, you know, ankle pain, knee pain, hip pain, nothing that's post-operatively, nothing just out of surgery, something's aching, something's bothering them. Well, as a physical therapist, your job is to be a detective. Basically, you have to find out what created this pain or what sort of problems do we have that we can then create a plan, an exercise-related plan to help them get out of pain, build back greater capacity, get back to doing the things that they love to do. Well, as a part of that evaluation, that detective work, I kept on seeing this deja vu-like scenario where time and time again, these great athletes were unable to perform a great-looking bodyweight squat. I'd say, get out of your shoes, show me a, a squat, a deep squat, let me see what it looks like. And then try a single leg squat. Let me see what it looks like. I don't expect a lot of people to just knock out a pistol squat like that. But I want to see good quality movement. I want to see proficiency before we ever even look at how their weighted lifts look. And time and time again, I was seeing these problems. And I, it sort of dawned on me that as a society, we've conceptually rearranged our athletic priorities to where the squat is only viewed as an exercise that we do a few times a week, maybe. And not necessarily a movement anymore. You know, if you look at different cultures around the world, the squat is a movement. It's a resting position. It's a cooking position. It's a position you're going to the bathroom in. You know, it's something that you use in daily life. But yet when you ask, especially an American, hey, when did you squat last? Well, uh, that would have been last Tuesday at the gym. You know, we're not even using it as a movement anymore. So my idea was with all the different movements that we have available to us and how movement sets the precedent for how you then perform not only in the gym but then also as an athlete on whatever battlefield you so choose the squat was one of those fundamental building blocks you could say that i thought many people still had cracks within sort of like building a house you have to solidify your foundation before you build the walls and then put fancy things within each room well, my idea was if we can build that foundation just a little bit stronger by focusing on one simple movement, it sets the precedent for so many other things to get better. So hence became the name of Squat University. The idea actually, uh, my first book was, uh, I called it the Squat Bible. Uh, actually, Squat University was sort of the first name for the book when I was still throwing around different names for it. So. It just sort of became a thing. I was like, you know, what? we're just going to call it Squat University. Uh, the idea that where I'm teaching people. So it's got the university, the squad as sort of the fundamental movement block. If you want to get better at deadlifts, if you want to get better at cleans, at snatches, at so many different movements, you want to jump, you want to land, you want to cut, you got to learn how to squat first. You know, crawl, crawl, walk, run kind of thing when you're learning as a developmental phase. Well, we got to be able to squat before we pick up a barbell and do a lot of things too. So movement first, exercise second. Let me show you how you can improve your performance decrease your risk of aches and pains and sort of just live life to its fullest potential by just focusing on fixing some of these fundamental flaws that we have in movement first. So um, the idea really came I, for creating Squat University. I wrote the entire first book of the Squat Bible. And at the time, um, you know, really back in, so this is early 2015 or so, 2014, you couldn't really, uh, self-publishing wasn't that cool yet, I guess. So most of the time you're sort of, uh, str uh, I guess you would say pigeonholed into trying to look for publishers to then publish your book. And at time and time again, people came back and they're like, look, A, no one knows who you are. Uh, B, like we don't think we can sell a book that is just based on the squat. Like that's way too niche. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, I came across this guy, which I'm sure if you guys have heard, Gary Vaynerchuk, Gary yes. V. And basically his idea was like, hey, if, if you have a love for anything in this world, and it could be literally fishing lures, and you could talk about fishing lures all day long, and you think you could make a business maybe out of fishing lures, start talking to the world about it. Make a blog about it. Make an Instagram. Make YouTube videos about it. What's something that you could literally talk all day long about and never get tired of? And I was like, uh, I, I have that idea. So literally, as October 2015, uh, I created an Instagram page. I created a Twitter handle. I created a YouTube page. I created a Facebook page. And I created my blog, which is squatuniversity.com. And I just started putting out content. I basically uh, took the book that I had written and sort of broke it up into blog format. So I made small little blogs that released once a week. Uh, just created a bunch of content for free. And really, it, it didn't even seem like work because I enjoyed it so much. Mm -hmm. Like I could literally sit like we are now and just talk for hours on the basics of fundamental movement, physical therapy, performance. And um, that's really where Squat University went, and it just slowly continued to grow and grow. And I, I think the big thing was when you enjoy doing what you're doing and you have just so much passion for it, like I would have to set timers for me to stop working on stuff because <laughs> I would just, like literally if, if I didn't set a timer for myself, like I would be up till two in the morning every single day just reading, writing, researching, like doing more and more and more. Um, Instagram was one of the, the platforms that just sort of took off more than others. I think it was just a, a medium where it was easy to make smaller pieces of content. Mm -hmm. um, didn't have to be very polished, sort of like TikTok nowadays. It's not, didn't have to be perfect. It didn't have to have that YouTube vibe to it, you know, to, to grow on it. And uh, yeah, just things just sort of took off from there. Okay, so I got, I got a few questions right off the bat. I'll ask you the most embarrassing one first. <laughs> have you started using TikTok yet? Oh, you bet, man. I'm yeah. all over TikTok. Now, oh, yeah. I will say this uh, for anyone listening. I'm not dancing on TikTok. <laughs> um, I am not doing any viral, goofy videos on TikTok. Um, I mean, while I like to joke around and have fun, um, you know, you want to make content that's natural to you, that feels normal. You know, you don't want to, uh, you know, pigeonhole yourself into trying to make content that looks like it'll go viral on a certain, you know, you want to be true to yourself. So really what you're going to see on TikTok is a lot of content sort of like what I make on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Some of them may even be uh, sort of like recalibrated just for that platform. Um, there's also some like unpolished features on TikTok that's very native to the platform, like mm -hmm. the blue was it the or the green screen uh, background where I could speak over. But yes, I am on TikTok and uh, having a little bit of fun on there too. Yeah, I've, I've, I've barely been getting some traction on there too, actually. That's the reason why I ask. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. It took like a year of like consistent posting, but I'm like, all right, it's finally going along. But Yeah, it's it's a weird platform as far as the algorithm goes because yeah. like all of a sudden you'll have a video that'll just go viral and get um, you know thousands and thousands of views and then you'll do a, a video that's really similar and it just it won't go anywhere. So um, the, the, the algorithm is very different than a lot of the other platforms, mm -hmm. but I still think it's important if you want to grow a brand to be, have your foot in multiple different areas, just because you never know. I mean, TikTok could go the way of Vine mm -hmm. and we may not even hear of it in a year or two. Um, it could be the next Instagram. So it's important, mm -hmm. I think, if you really want to be serious about growing your brand to be on uh, all different platforms, at least a little bit testing mm -hmm. it out and, and seeing, uh, seeing how it goes. No, yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, 
and it's just like I mean just putting yourself on different medium just seeing what connects I think that's yeah. really important and I think that's something that I need to do a little bit more especially with the dedication you had with YouTube with Instagram and Instagram was obviously the most relatable one so I'm hoping it doesn't go the way of Vine because that's what I'm trying to go <laughs> on but I also don't want to rely yeah. on just that you know I also want to hedge my bets um, accordingly just so that way I can maximize yeah. that potential growth for the future um, mm -hmm. as opposed for the other question that I wanted to ask you was um, as a physical therapist, what is the first thing that you look for um, when it comes to like an injury, like let's say like a knee or, or a hip, what, what, what would you look for? What would you dissect in a person to kind of get to the root of the issue? Because a lot of people, uh, and I know you've, you've, um, you've talked about this as well, they like to just ice the pain away or give you medicine to just get rid of like the, the short term issue. They're not really fixing it for the long term. Um, so I'm kind of curious on as to your thoughts for that. Yeah, uh, as the saying goes, movement is medicine. Mm -hmm. So the first thing we do is we look at, depends how acute the injury is. Let's say you sprained your ankle, okay? So a very new injury, it's hurting like hell. Well, again, movement is medicine. Let's find positions where it doesn't really hurt. So let's uh, maybe prop your foot up a little bit and uh, let's see if we can do things to help optimize the healing process. So sometimes just some little ankle pumps or things like that, maybe putting a neuromuscular stimulation device on it to get the, the calf pumping a little bit. It's gonna get good blood flow to the area. It's gonna pump swelling away. Um, and then eventually maybe getting on a bike or then walking, taking a couple steps, keeping everything moving is the key uh, within pain-free ranges and making sure that we're not continuing the injury cycle is key. Now, let's say it's a little bit of an older injury been dealing with a hip pain for a couple weeks. Well, again, movement is medicine. So what do we do? I look at different ways in which someone is controlling their body to see if there's any insight into ways in which we can a modify their symptoms and be sort of returned to more pain free states. So a quick example is for someone that may be having a hip pain, and then I watch them squat. And I notice that they shift every single time to the right side, and they have right hip pain. Well, from there, I can see the movement problem. And then I can break down systematically joint by joint to sort of figure out what sort of things may be at fault. And this takes a little experience. It takes sort of a little of a bit of a blue, uh, blueprint to, to understand where you need to look. But uh, a very simple way to think about it is where the problem is, let's look above and let's look below and see if we find any problems there. And then also look at the area side to side. So for someone who may have a hip shift, it could be because of an ankle issue. So a person could have a restricted ankle uh, because of maybe a sprained ankle years ago. And because of that, it's limiting their motion to squat symmetrically. And now they're overloading a certain part of their hip. And the hip is just the weak link. The hip isn't the problem. The hip's where the symptoms are. The problem's all the way at the ankle. So if you can uncover that and then modify it, and then retest. Test, retest is key. You don't have to be uh, a scientist sitting within a laboratory to do very simple scientific methods, which is a test, retest. I find a problem, I assess it. I'm then going to make a change and then I'm going to reassess my original thing and see does it modify things. If improving that ankle mobility allows them a better squat pattern, which then relieves some pain in their hip, I know for a fact that that ankle pain or that ankle restriction is related to that person's hip pain. And then from there, I can craft together a plan that not only looks at global problems with that ankle, for example, but also addresses the hip issues. So very isolated things that may need a little soft tissue work. It may need a little bit of strengthening, may need some mobility work itself, but we have to look big picture 
and then also close up. The problem with nowadays is that people are, people are so quick to diagnose problems based on exactly what they see on an MRI or x-ray. You know, take a step back and look at movement. So oftentimes we look at fixing symptoms and we don't understand cause. We don't understand the why. And that's why it's so easy to get someone out of pain. Sure, take all this pain medication, lay off of it, don't squat for two weeks. But yet we continue to have this cycle of injuries. And so many times I get people that have come to me and they have been dealing with back pain, not for a couple weeks, but they've been dealing with back pain for two years. And what has their advice been? Oh, we'll just stop squatting for a little bit and then slowly come back to it. Or get a cortisone shot, wait a couple weeks, then come back to it. Oh, it starts to feel better and then they hit heavier weights. Oh, now the pain's back. All right, let's get another cortisone shot. So we're very, very good at chasing symptoms and not very good at addressing cause. So that's the idea behind a movement-based approach, which is what the physical therapy profession sort of hangs its hat on. Now everyone obviously operates a little bit differently uh, within the profession, but that's, that's the idea behind uh, a physical therapy approach is that we're addressing movement. And in doing so, we address the cause of issues. Not only do I get you out of pain, but I help rebuild uh, more proficient and efficient movement so that not only do we get out, but we sort of fix the pain. We fix the cause so that this doesn't become a problem in the future. And that's one of the things that I'm really grateful for in regards to your page. And then, uh, well, Mark is my trainer as well, is that for me as a person going to the gym, right, my, my biggest issue personally was just trying to run, not uh, crawl, walk, and then begin to run. I was just trying to like mm -hmm. hit that EPR like a dumb egotistical kid. And that obviously <laughs> wasn't the right approach. Uh, but obviously it's just going back to the fundamentals, just just starting with the full range of movement. Uh, movement. And then actually one of the things that I really enjoyed that, that you had posted too was, uh, I think you posted, uh, the lighter lifts will define what your heavy lifts will look like in regards to like the range of motion and the control. And that's mm -hmm. something that's that I've personally done and implemented. It has been like a, a little bit of an ego blow, but I'm like, all right, <laughs> if I want to get to like where I want to be, that's where I have to start off, you know? So I, I, mm -hmm. I want to thank you on behalf of everybody, for first of all, and myself, obviously, but You're I think very it's welcome. amazing. So thank you for that. You're very welcome. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the biggest things. Obviously, when we go into the gym, um, I mean, <laughs> ego's ego's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Because without ego, sometimes you don't have that drive mm -hmm. to lift bigger weights, to outdo yourself, to outdo your competitor. But it can also be a double-edged sword in that sometimes you'll push yourself too quickly. Mm -hmm. You'll do one more rep than you should. You'll do ten more pounds than you should. And we want these results so quickly that we often you know, go, we rush the process. And I think that's when eventually for a lot of people, they sort of overdo things. And that's where those small aches and pains come. Now, a lot of the injuries that we sustain in the gym, they're not big injuries. You know, you're not going to tear your ACL in the gym often. You're not going to have this just huge traumatic problem that just hits you all at once. Like you'd see with like maybe a football player, mm -hmm. but they become these nagging injuries. And the longer you're in the gym and the more you're defying sort of that science, of trying to get proper adaptation slowly over time, just the quicker some of these problems can occur. So the idea is, hey, let's take a step back, let's take our ego out of it, and let's build slowly. And the thing too is, I mean, that's, gosh, that's life, right? Yeah. That we don't, we, we want things quickly. You know, we see the person on Instagram with a million followers, they say, I want that now. Yeah. So how can I get there as quick as possible? And they don't go, oh, that person, 
took six years to get there, mm-hmm. you know? So, I mean, same goes in, in weightlifting and in, in powerlifting and lifts in the gym is we want that 315 pound bench press. How can I get there as quick as possible? And sometimes we, we skip steps. And I think that's when uh, trouble can happen sometimes. I, I completely agree. You got, you got anything you want to say, Mark, by the way? I don't I want to. I don't want to oh, yeah, I've, I've just been listening in and kind of taking mental notes on certain things. Um, you had mentioned, uh, well, I saw the meme that you posted with the guy and the rifle, you know, in the full squat mm. position. That yeah. really resonated with me because as somebody who's like, I've been squatting below parallel for, you know, years and years and years. And so it never quite went away. Like, I'm not, I don't have amazing flexibility, but I have the mobility in the lifts that I want to do particularly mm-hmm. squat where I'm a relatively big guy and I can go below parallel, like I'll, you know, if I'm doing a low bar squat, maybe I'll just go, go below parallel, but I like to train like a little bit for, you know, be like 10% competent in Olympic lifting. So I'll do high bar squats all the way down. And I just like being able to have that mobility to sit and do that. And as I work with other people, um, I've noticed that is a real thing that people, a lot of people cannot get that. So how can I teach you how to squat? you know, even to parallel, if you're not comfortable getting in that position uh, by yourself. And that is just something I guess you, you, you know, you have to put in that work on your own. It's not going to come down to, oh, I squat twice. Well, that's not going to do it, you know? Um, And so I thought those kind of memes really resonated with me. And it's something that you go, man, I wish everybody would have just that basic type of mobility because it translates to so many other things. Um, As I pitch myself, well, first of all, when I, you know, the reason he mentioned you're having, uh, he's having Squat University on. And I'm like, that is one of these pages that in kind of a sea of bullshit on Instagram, as I'm sure you know, <laughs> there's many things I have to say about like, you know, the the my qualms with the current state of the fitness industry in just the sense that like, you know, this like, everybody's trying to reinvent the wheel, as I'm sure, you know, you know, and there's like this functional fitness kind of like, you know, I'll say a guy like Joel Seedman or these people are like always inventing new exercises when it's like, but is this person, have they mastered the squat yet? Can they do these basic things? And I just say all that to say, almost everything I say on Instagram is not helpful or useful. And then I, anytime I come across one of your videos, like I feel like I learn something every single time. And so although I do have like years of experience lifting, I still always, anytime somebody wants me to train them, I'm like, I'm still a work in progress. I'm still always learning and always tinkering with the basics, like just my foot placement on squatting and deadlifting mm-hmm. and and trying to feel like, you know, am I pushing evenly through my feet when I'm deadlifting? All these little basics and even like, you know, you'll do tutorials on like, you know, there is no perfect form with squatting. It has to do with your hip and all these different things. But I love seeing you know, these diagrams of like, what are the physics of squatting? What should this angle be in comparison, you know, your femur to your low back and all that stuff, because you are kind of raised with this, like if, you know, high school football coach, you, you grew up in a, in a place where people, you know, you had the top equipment. I assume you had good trainers, but like, mm-hmm. you know, some assistant coach is trying to teach me how to clean and jerk and doesn't know what he's doing. And because of that, I have a lingering back issue for, you know, most of my life. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but something else that, you, that resonated with me was, um, that statement, movement is medicine. I've had to find that on my own because I, like when I first had these back issues, you'd go to the doctor and, and wait your turn and they'd go, uh, yeah, here's ibuprofen and ice and heat it. And like, it just doesn't help. And over the years as I've had, like, you know, most people with back issues, they'll have like the recurring thing, it pops. And then, you know, you're out for a couple of weeks and you rest and the doctor will tell you to not deadlift or whatever. But as I've grown, 
I've done exactly that, which is like, do what you can. I just recently had a back flare up on vacation, came back and like, you know, couldn't do what I normally did. So I just backed down and said, what can I do? And I did out the auxiliaries and it, you know, it got better and now I'm hitting a PR two weeks later. Um, so I think that's so important for people because, you know, not only doctors, but mainstream, like your friends will tell you like, don't do it while you're, de you're deadlifting. So that's dangerous inherently sort of, you know, um, yeah. when in reality, I just think there's always something you can work on. And, you know, seeing your pages encourage me to like, look at like, what is going on? You know, you can say, oh, my back's fucked up and, and that's it. It's like, okay, well, let's take a video of you and see if your form's off is, you know, is your center of uh, uh, gravity really over your foot? Is something happening? you know, any point along this lift that could be causing this or is, you know, your, are your erectors too weak for, you know, the, the weight that you're handling? Um, and it is this flexibility is good, but it's like strength, flexibility, mobility, um, and just using the proper weights. Um, so a couple actual questions I had were, you know, you seem to have this approach as a physical therapist, as somebody who grew up weightlifting. Now mm -hmm. I've encountered some, like I kind of all like, you know, well, even guys like, you know, some of these huge guys in the fitness space, like Jeff Cavalier, obviously had this like controversy over lifting fake weights. And I look at him not not to like, ask you to talk shit about any of these guys, but sometimes I go, these guys don't know how to lift and so like, you know, I'll look at his top deadlift and be like, eh, he's a little bit off. Like it is, he's not a lifter. And mm -hmm. I often kind of like in my mind, I'm like, some of these physical therapists are like, they're more concerned. They're not, they're not masters of like practicing what they preach. And even he's given some dangerous advice, like exhaling before you squat and all these things. I'm like, what is this guy? He's so influential, but they're getting it wrong. And then also they'll have these things like, don't ever do dips or don't ever do overhead press because like it's going to hurt your shoulder. And some physical therapists seem to have this like approach of like, just don't do the thing, you know? Yeah. Do you think that like your experience as a lifter has given, like how prevalent is that from your perspective in the world of physical therapy where, where people are like, there could be, there's a tiny chance you're gonna get injured from it, just don't ever do it versus somebody <laughs> like you who has this practical experience and came up with lifting and you mm -hmm. can, prescribe this movement as medicine philosophy? Well, I'll say the the weightlifter, the powerlifter, the competitive mm -hmm. crossfitter within physical therapy is very rare. There's not many of us out there. So, and for sure, none that, very, very few that like were competitive strength athletes and yeah. then became physical therapists. Yeah. Sometimes you'll see people like they'll get into physical therapy and then maybe they'll, they'll pick up weight training later in life. Yeah. Or things like that but but you don't see it often to where it's the other way around now speaking purely on jeff i personally don't know him okay. and i haven't really looked at a ton of his content to really give yeah. a great opinion i will say this though i do know he comes from a background where it is much more at least the style of what he's going for is much more um aesthetics bodybuilding yeah. sort of that fitness yeah. type world versus a powerlifting weightlifting world so i think there's going to be a lot of a little bit of disconnect sometimes when, when we're looking at specific and i guess just to focus in on some like yeah. there was some controversy over him using fake weights and like him doing yeah. a 500 pound deadlift and then people called him out and he did like a 400 pound deadlift but it was really shitty for like and these things like where he's squatting and he's like make sure you breathe all the way out and like crunch your abs and it's like like, yeah. you know, he does hundreds and hundreds of videos, but there were a few things where he's like prescribing German volume training where it's like, do, 
you know, 70% of your max weight for 10 reps with one minute rest for 10 sets. And these things that were like, you don't have the experience to, to prescribe this. And it, at some point it does become dangerous because you're- For sure. Yeah. I'll say this. I, I started competing in weightlifting in 2005. So, um, I mean, I've already, what is that? 16 years under my belt so far of, of Olympic weightlifting experience. So while I never became an elite weightlifter, you know, the, the highest I ever placed, I placed six at the 2011 U.S. Nationals. So, yeah. I mean, that's take it impressive. For what it is. I mean, this is somebody who I dabble yeah. in weightlifting and it's like, holy shit, this takes so much time so much to time. master the basics. Exactly. I mean, so I, I mean, gosh, for 10 years, 11 years, all I did for five, six days a week was Olympic weightlifting. Now, even though I stopped competing and the reason I stopped competing is because I would like to stay married. It's a little tough to, you know, have a marriage, work a 40 hour a week job, spend 40 hours on top of that creating content. But I still right now, I still lift four days a week, purely Olympic weightlifting. And I'm coached by uh, Chad Vaughn, who's a two time Olympian. So I'm still like you mentioned earlier, yeah. you're always trying to continue learning things and refining things i'm still refining things in my own technique on a daily basis and actually yeah. i've got a post i'm going to put up later today that just shows some of the things that i'm still working on 16 years in the game of working on you know maintaining a straighter arm through full extension so i speak to things again only things that i have experienced myself that i've known myself and things like I feel like I have a good enough background within weightlifting to speak on it because I've been involved with it for so long. Yeah. I don't really speak much on the bodybuilding side of things because that's not my zone. You yeah. know what I'm saying? So yeah. I'll say this, uh, you asked about like dangerous exercises and things like that. One, uh, having flashy titles like that are eye popping and eye catching for social media. If I say the five worst exercises you should ever do, yeah. it catches Yeah, 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 what is that? Now, is it, a, is it necessarily a bad thing to say something like that? I don't think so. It depends on your context. Yeah. For example, if I say, you know, I think I had a video where I was like, you know, stop stretching your pecs like this. All right, well then, is it clickbait yeah. or are you actually talking about, are you gonna follow it up with some educational information? Like, hey, here's the way I see a lot of people stretching their pecs. You're actually probably placing way more torque on your shoulder joint than you are your pecs. Right. Here's a better way to do this. You know, yeah. things like that. Um, there will be some people that say there's no such thing as a bad exercise, just bad context. I don't know necessarily if I abide by that yet. I do feel like there probably are some exercises that for most people, they probably shouldn't be doing. Mm -hmm. There's more uh, with any exercise. You have to weigh the risk and the reward yep. and understand the long-term context. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give an example because people want to understand things like this. Uh, the Jefferson curl, right? The Jefferson curl is is a heavy, well, the way met, some show it today. It's a loaded exercise into more and more flexion. Now, I've watched a good amount of videos on it. And some of the people that sort of trace it back to its earlier uh, iterations, they people would use it like as a stretch to sort of get more back rounding, more flexion, sort of uh, almost like a flexibility mobility drill for the back. Okay. Now, for some people, could I see that as a problem? Not necessarily, because in yoga, technically, the idea is to create a more snake like, slender, flexible spine. So if you're using very low load, is it automatically going to damage your spine? No, I, I don't think we should have a fear of flexion at all. And I'm looking it up and that's like, a, it's like an RDL that you go into to flexion. Go into more and more flexion. And yeah. I feel like some people have 
incorrectly interpreted what I have said in the past about not doing it. Yeah. If you're using lightweight, is it the worst thing in the world? Probably yeah. not. I'm not if you're trying that. to do a strict RDL and it ends up being that. So that's one. <laughs> or two, like if your goal is to be a powerlifter, be a weightlifter, what is your goal? Your goal is to lift massive load and we don't want the back to round. Right. That's an energy leak. We want the back to remain as locked as possible. Now, sure, some people will be like, well, I read this research article and it showed that there was 10 degrees of motion at the spine. All right, there's a small amount of motion that's going to physiologically come when you're moving. But yeah. the idea is that we're locking the spine within a zone, the neutral zone, and limiting as much as possible motion while the more motion creates is mo created about the hips. So the yeah. idea is we don't want to have um, uncontrolled excessive motion at the spine. Yeah. It's an energy leak. It's inefficient. Yeah. So why would I want to train that right. for that motion? If I want the spine to bend, sure. Let me do like a cat camel, a cat cow. Let me. You can do some very unloaded movements to the spine because the spine is designed to move. Yeah. If you can't move your spine, you're not going to be very athletic. Right. But in the same sense, if my goal is then to lift very heavy weight, I don't want my spine. I don't want to teach my spine that that's an okay way to move under load. So yeah. context is key. Yeah. And I think a lot of times people will say certain things that are very flashy because it's social media. We're, we're looking for that instant reaction. Yeah. And in some cases, it can be warranted if you have uh, the right context and backup explanation. So I always say, like, people will always uh, jump on titles uh, of things and say, uh, you know, that's clickbait. It's only clickbait if you then don't have context and educational discussion to back up what you're trying to say. Right. Also, when you say that, like, this is a bad exercise, well, I need I need discussions of it. I want to understand what your point is. Yeah. People will say a deep squat is a bad exercise. Right. Well, I've listened to a lot of the context behind with their discussion and it's part pure crap. A deep squat for someone who is healthy that has no, you know, uh, limiting factors as far as like horrible knee arthritis or, you know, something that prevents them from getting into a deep squat while maintaining sufficient technique elsewhere, there's nothing wrong with that at all. There's no research at all that shows that that is inefficient. And so I saw something in, with in Clarence context, Kennedy recently where he mentioned, oh, Clarence Kennedy, I saw this video about deep, deep squatting and he mentioned yeah. that um, it can actually add collagen or, or promote collagen synthesis to go to a certain point I don't know. I didn't look into it, but I'm like, you know, I laughed. Yeah. Out. Good. Okay. It's a good idea. To I will say what, when, you, when you go, when you are squatting to full depth, you're loading the body through a full range of motion. So in that okay. instance, you will have stress distribution across during the range of the motion across the full range within that joint. So I, I'm guessing that's what he's referring to is that you're, you're technically, you're strengthening your body within the ranges that you move it. So if you're squatting through full range of motion, you're going to add uh, strength and stability, you're going to add layers of reinforcement through the different layers within the tissues uh, to build capacity within those ranges of motion. So some people will say, uh, you know, you only squat to uh, just below parallel or 90 degrees, whatever people say. But if you think about it like this, you're only going to strengthen your body within the ranges that you put it under. So if I only ever strengthen my body to 90 degrees, what happens when I get pushed under 90 degrees? What happens when I have to go deeper? I don't have that control. I don't own that movement. So I think you're uh, being less optimal. Now, does that mean that everyone has the body currently to allow a, a full last squat? I would say at the current ca uh, capacity for some people, the answer is no. 
uh, you have to understand anatomy. Uh, some people, as they grow and develop, their their hip sockets become much deeper, and they don't allow for maybe a full aspergillus squat compared to someone who has more of a di- diplastic hip that is a more shallow hip socket that allows them naturally to squat to full depth with ease. Um, you also have uh, requirements of sport. You know, I don't need a power lifter to squat aspergillus. In fact, it's probably less efficient in competition if he you know, can just barely get under that passing squat, he's probably going to be able to hoist more weight than someone who goes aster grass, yeah. which probably won't be a very good weightlifter if you don't go grass grass. So that's my big thing that, you know, a lot of people have seen a lot of the content that Chad Vaughn and I have been putting out recently. You know, if, if you only squat just under parallel and you want to be an Olympic weightlifter, you want to be a crossfitter that does cleans and snatches, you're not going to be as efficient as possible. It's like, doing deadlifts only from blocks yeah. and then in competition, all you got to pull from the floor, you yeah. know, your body's going to have to go there. If you want to be good at cleans and snatches, you have to go to full depth. Yeah. So why not strengthen and reinforce the body and become comfortable in those positions? Yeah. So uh, to piggyback on that, this is always an interesting question for me that I imagine you get asked a lot about. And I saw some recent posts about it. Um, is number one both olympic lifting for like general sports preparation and then a two starting kids young with olympic lifting because i think when people look at it they're like it looks sort of alarming to see like an eight-year-old doing like a snatch or a clean and jerk but you know i see that and go like oh that's a great idea to get that like mobility and that just general sports preparation and um learning how to use your body explosively at a really young age but of course, I've had this debate with many people, like a friend of mine like became a chiropractor and had this like debate with me on Facebook about, you know, weightlifting, stunting growth and all. And I, I was just like, look, I don't think there's any science behind that, to be honest. None whatsoever. There's not a single shred of evidence that shows that weightlifting stunts growth. I think one of the only research articles on any type of weightlifting related growth plate fractures was in, it was like a case study of a kid who was doing like an, if you actually read the full article, he's doing like an overhead press in his basement while his parents were upstairs and he dropped the weight and broke his wrist at a growth plate or something like that. It was like, not even like a controlled weightlifting environment. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's no evidence that weightlifting stunts growth. Uh, if you look at the evidence of, of weightlifting specifically, you have to look up weight, not just weight training, but weightlifting because weightlifting yeah. itself is a sport. At a young age, the injury risk rate is extremely low compared right. to traditional sports of soccer, baseball, football, basketball, all of those have much higher injury risks than, yeah. than weight training or weightlifting specifically, even powerlifting. Yeah. The idea is that if a, a child is mature enough to take instruction, uh, mature enough to not like horse play around the weight room, you know, because most injuries that occur at a young age in weight training, and again, this is also in research is horseplay. They drop a barbell or, you know, a weight on their foot or something like that. You know, um, and then also, can they take commands? Can they understand technique? And as long as the progression with loading is is correct, just like anyone, no matter the age, you're going to keep injury risk low. So uh, weight training can be very healthy at a young age. Uh, when I was out in Kansas City, I was training under Anna Martin, who's been in the sport of Olympic weightlifting for years and years, competes as a master internationally. Um, she has a ton of young kids. I would say over half our gym was under the age of 15. Crazy. You know. So, I mean, it was, it was amazing to see these young kids on Saturdays come in and weight train. Um, what was the second part of that question? I know the first part was that. Uh, oh, well, no, oh, this, the first yes. part was just about, like, as somebody who came from the background of uh, weightlifting as a sport, well, 
you know, the second part was, do you, is that myth philosophy on um, weightlifting as a sport for general preparation for all sports like football? That's a good question. So it's going to depend on the person and the return on investment for what you're looking for. Because the first thing is that the Olympic lifts take a lot of time to learn. They're very technical, especially if you're talking about the full snatch. So it depends on the situation. Let's say you're a football coach in college. You've got 80 guys in the weight room. You've got to be able to teach all of them a couple lifts. You get an hour with them before practice. Now, yeah. in that hour, you may have 80 guys. 10 of them may have been doing the Olympic lifts, both snatch and clean and jerk since eighth grade. You may have 10 of them that just did a power clean. That's it. They have no idea what a snatch is. They can power clean. They can't do much else. The other ones maybe dabbled around a little bit. And then you get some kids who barely touched a barbell in high school. They're just strong as hell. So you have this wide variety and then you're all trying to program for them. I mean, it can be very difficult for So in their certain situations, uh, depending on uh, the coach, what they have available, what they know how to do them well themselves, how much other coaches they have to, to give direction. You know, sometimes you'll just see coaches use like a power clean from the hip or maybe even like even medicine ball throws because you're going to get a lot of explosive work out of it for the team. Now, I, I think uh, if you've got a great coaching staff, you've got uh, the, the amount of availability of time and space, you know, teaching um, at least one or two of the lifts, a variation of them, like a, a power clean from the knee, I think can be extremely helpful in preparation for other sports because it teaches you coordination, teaches you timing, teaches you explosion, you know, power generation. So I think there's a lot of benefit from the Olympic lifts. Do I think they are 100% necessary? I don't think I would say necessary for all sports because I think you could uh, get a lot of variety out of other implements, a kettlebell, right? You could do a kettlebell swing. You can do kettlebell snatches. Uh, those things are going to promote same sort of uh, coordination, timing, and power generation. Um, you know, a lot of medicine ball work. But I, I do think if you look at every exercise as a tool in your toolbox, I think the Olympic lifts, or at least portions of them, can be excellent teachers for many sport applications as long as the coaching is there and then the availability to prescribe the techniques appropriately depending on the amount of athletes that you have in the gym at the same time. But I'll say um, I do see some uh, coaches down in Texas that put a lot of stuff up on Twitter recently. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they're teaching these kids eighth grade, seventh grade, and they're teaching them the fundamentals, how to squat to full depth first. Once you learn how to squat to full depth, okay, now we can learn the power clean. We're all going to go from the hinge and we're going to clean, you know? So, I mean, step-by-step yeah. progression, you learn it correctly. I think you're really going to build a lot of the athletes that are going to be able to excel at least performance wise for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And, and also to, you know, to, to relates back to something you said, which is like the squat is sort of at the heart of all that, you know, you, you can't mm -hmm. Olympic lift, you learn how to squat. And also, do you feel the same way about the deadlift? Like, would you, you teach somebody to full squat before you taught them deadlift? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Personally, I would. Uh, I yeah. think they sort of go hand in hand. I mean, I think the very start of a deadlift to a point is a squat. Yeah. You know, to, to the knee. And then obviously there's a lot more of that hinging action from there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, again, I think uh, there's these fundamental principles. We have to squat. We have to hinge. We have to be able to, you know, have a loaded carry. There's all these fundamental movement patterns 
that I think at a young age need to be solidified with their coaching. Uh, that's going to just set the stage for being able to do a lot more of the dynamic movements long term. I mean, if you think about it, if you can't take a bar out of the rack and walk back and forth without losing stability, I mean, what yeah. what are we going to look like on the field trying to run? You know, I mean, or yeah. taking a loaded carry, carrying a 25-pound dumbbell. Can you carry it and maintain proper symmetry with your pelvis and things like that? You know, uh, fundamental movements before – high-level performance. Yeah, and that relates to something else um, I saw you post about recently, which was uh, everything, like when you realize everything is a core movement, you know, because yeah. it's yeah. also one of those, and I was gonna use that as a segue to ask, um, like some of your thoughts on like, maybe one way to word this would be like, fitness trends that you would rather, you know, see like go away. And I think one of them, for me at least is like, core 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 what it's like if you're yeah. squatting and deadlifting and doing everything as you said you know a standing barbell curl is a core movement um you know but i do think it's something that people don't really understand and you can do a million crunches but you know generating and it's been a focus of mine recently like in the last year of like just just perfecting abdominal you know stiffness in the valsava maneuver when doing squats yeah. and deadlifts um and it's its own thing to master um, but do you mind talking about that of like trends on, you know, in, in, in the world of fitness and specifically Instagram and kind of online fitness that, that yeah. you think are, are maybe overcomplicating things? Yeah. So, I mean, the idea behind the post was that when most people think of core stability, what do they think of? They think of sit-ups, they think of Russian twists, they think of V-ups, they think of different things designed to isolate the core because who do we look for for core work? You look at a bodybuilder or a fitness model that's got just like a shredded six pack and they're like, all right, six ways to blast your abs. Yeah. But the idea is that, you know what also is core work is a front squat, yeah. is a properly performed deadlift, is a single leg RDL. And it's the idea that if you are an athlete, if you are someone that is trying to move better, you need to train your core through movement first. Now, this isn't to say that you can't ever do isolated ab work. You definitely can go do your sit-ups if you want. But it's the idea that just because you strengthen your abdominal muscles in isolation does not at all mean that it will lead to better quality movement. And here's my reasoning for that, is that we have all seen the person that has a shredded six-pack who just looks like crap on a squat, who can't deadlift for shit. And it's because uh, aesthetics do not equal function necessarily. We have to be able to train for movement. Now, the thing is, is that when you train a proper RDL, when you train a proper squat, you alluded to it before, as you said, proper bracing, proper stiffness, using those abdominals, not to move the spine, but to maintain the spine in place to create stiffness. And what that does is proximal stiffness enhances distal athleticism and power. That's something Dr. Stuart McGill always says, the foremost authority on back mechanics in the world. So if I can create more stiffness in my core, I'm going to be able to kick a ball farther. I'm going to be able to throw a ball farther. I'm going to be able to squat more weight because that stiffness when the core allows you to transfer power within the extremities. So the way in which you approach training them for proper movement is to just focus on proper breathing, proper bracing, and execution of the movement. Now, 
the only caveat to that is if you are a bodybuilder, if you are within the fitness aesthetic world and your goal is to isolate in hypertrophy very specific muscles to sculpt the body in that manner, sure, do all the isolated work you want. Yeah. But if you watch a bodybuilding show, they're not up there doing a squat. <laughs> they're up there posing. They're creating a very specific sculpture of their body. That's not the way baseball's played. That's not the way football's played. That's not the way powerlifting is played. You know, we're, we're here to, to create movement. So we have to train our core accordingly. Now, the interesting thing is that when you go about this correctly, when you go about treating your body as a whole and creating that proper stiffness before then moving, you're going to hypertrophy those muscles. They are going to get bigger. You're going to, to see muscular development. But you're doing so as a secondary effect of the way in which you are moving and not because you have isolated those areas. Yeah. And then also we have to have the fun discussion that most people don't want to have is that abs are often unveiled by the way in which you are eating and not necessarily how you are training because we all know people that just do sit-ups after sit-ups mm -hmm. and yet still don't have a six-pack. And it's not until they actually approach their diet correctly and change the way they're eating that they lose a little bit of body fat and then actually expose the muscle that is underneath. Yeah. So, yeah. People don't want to have that discussion though. Yeah, it's very interesting. And also this resonated with me like when you say, you know, some of these movements that not hypertrophying your abs. I've found that with so many things that, you know, the biggest bang for your buck are oftentimes going to be these core movements. So I try to preach simplicity of, you know, if you're getting results from squats, deadlifts, barbell rows, weighted pull-ups, um, you know, the basic presses, um, you know, to me, I would rather repeat those, you know, throughout the week. And I've kind of more of a bodybuilding style training just because that was the only thing available. You're like Muscle and Fitness Magazine. Oh, this guy's doing 30 sets of chest on Monday and, you know, 40 <laughs> sets of back on Tuesday. Um, yeah. But you see that like sticking to and mastering a lot of these basics, you know, it's like, yeah, since I've got my deadlift over 500 pounds, my upper back is a lot bigger, you know, it, it's without having to do, a, a, you know, a lot of isolation work on top of that. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and same with apps. So I just feel like that's an interesting like thing to note that is a popular misconception, you know, that you have to do a million things, a lot of variety, you know, when it's in reality, there's probably this list of you know, relatively minimal um, exercises that you have to do well, but you know, they're gonna work every, so it, you know, a properly executed barbell row is also gonna work your posterior chain and, yeah. and, and that, and I've just tried to, as I've gone on in years, you know, put my energy and focus in, in mastering those basics and, and do some auxiliary work, but really try to progress through these basic movements. And that's gotten me really good results, you know, holistically, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, people are always looking for the next exercise and the next big thing when in reality, sometimes it's really just finding, you know, a few exercises that you enjoy training that you want to work on and then just working really hard to master them, master yeah. the fundamentals, work hard, you know, properly progress, give yourself time for adaptation and recovery and then come back in 10 years and let's see where you're at. You know, people, people don't want to hear that. It's not very <laughs> sexy to hear, you know? Yeah. And that's also another thing that I, that I try to preach to people because Especially during the pandemic, it's been like I've got it's gotten more people kind of, you know, they'll come to me and, and be like the gym's closed down, but I don't have an hour to work out. Like they'll come at me and I kind of 
try to dissect like what's going on here and their their notion of like what a workout means or what they're supposed to do and part of my thing is like if you're sedentary right now like i would find something that you enjoy so as you said like, stick to the things that you enjoy you know if you don't like lifting weights i'm not going to sit here and try to convince yeah. you to do that just because it's you know if you're sedentary if it's like if you want to gain muscle and get on bodybuilding stage well yes ultimately you're gonna have to lift weights but you know um I just think that, I mean, like, what's your approach with, with, you know, sort of proselytizing exercise to people? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing is education and getting people hooked up with people that can help coach them and, and explain to them how to do different things. Um, but you know, making, making exercise, especially if they're on that sedentary level, you got to make it fun. You got to make it interesting. You got to have things that they enjoy doing because the biggest thing that we know across the board is that people that fail at a lot of these I mean, we call them yo-yo diets, we call them yo-yo exercisers. People that jump into the gym, they try for a little bit, then they stop. It's because they don't have, they don't enjoy what yeah. they're doing. You know, you have to be able to find enjoyment and, and see results in, in what you're doing. And I think that's where I think, you know, the there's such a good role for, for the coach, for the trainer out there to be able to make those connections to people, see what, what are they looking for? What do they enjoy doing? Um, and really showing them, I think, the progress. I think... Uh, one of the biggest things that I think with an athlete coming in is really showing, taking video. Where are you at day one? Because even, you know, five weeks down the road, eight weeks down the road, some people, they that's where they start getting frustrated that they're not making progress. But then the coach can be like, hey, look at this. This is where you were eight weeks ago. See yeah. this progress? That's good. You know, yeah. keep that up. And I think that motivation can sometimes be very helpful for a lot of people to, to keep going. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a big thing too, um, especially because most people are, going to be geared at least initially on like, I want to make physical changes. Those are really hard, like, unless you're also taking yeah. years, but even then you can, there's so many vectors through which you can progress. And I'm a big, you know, advocate of like, you're either doing like the numbers of like, you know, writing down everything you do and progressing through that, but also, and I think you had a recent post about this too, that was like, if your squat's the same, but like the pain has gone away and your form is better and all these things, that is an improvement. And yeah. what we were saying before about like, you know, you got to check your ego to go back. And I've, I always try to do that of like, okay, yeah, you've got, you know, 400 on a squat, but it didn't look great. Let's back down and rebuild. Um, and a yeah. you know really clean, you know, closer to perfect quote unquote squat, you know, 400 pounds is an improvement. Um, yeah. But you have to find like, I think people like a video game, you have to find something that you can uh, measure the progress. Otherwise, yes, I think that's very helpful. Motion, I think right? that's very helpful. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's to have, um, for example, I'll give myself for an example. Uh, a couple years ago, um, I think my one rep max squat was at 85 kilos, so 187 pounds, was somewhere at like 420 ish, 422 or something like that. And um, I was never really um, very happy with the way my squat looked. I mean, it was deep. It wasn't asked to grass. It wasn't as deep as possible, but it was it was an improvement uh, from you know where I was when I first started, and it was fairly heavy. I mean, 420 pounds at 85 kilos. That's not you know record strength, but I was I was happy with where my progress was. Um, but this past year, I've really focused on uh, changing the game and really living that full depth with all my squats. First off, I'm not wearing my squat shoes anymore, my weightlifting shoes. I literally squat barefoot. And I'm sitting my butt on my heels as literally as deep as physiological possible with my squats. Now, obviously, to do that, I had to take a lot of weight off the bar. I had to take a huge ego step backwards. 
and also the way in which my programming is with Chad Vaughn is that the first day that we were starting to do this, we're like, all right, we're going to go this deep, but we're going to call your one rep max what you can do as a five second pause squat in that bottom <laughs> position. And literally like a, someone's counting it out, thousand one, thousand two, thousand three. And like, I mean, ask for grass bottom. And the first day I did it, I think my max was like, I think I did 130 uh, kilos. So again, not, not even 300 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's coming from like, gosh, yeah, just a year before I did yeah. 420. But well, that makes sense. Cause anytime I tell like, I'm like, do a real pause and like, you're going to cut like 20, 30% off your squat. Yeah, yeah. And, and not only do a real pause, but literally bottom out, do it at a complete ass to grass yeah. squat, which is again, so you're adding that much more depth to it. And it's yeah. not that I was squatting just a parallel, but I wasn't squatting to my full potential all the way down. Yeah. So again, in that, I try to tell people all the time, like, look, I'm giving advice to people all the time and trying to give, talk to people through my lens of what I've done as a weightlifter, but then also as a doctor of physical therapy. But I myself am still an athlete and I myself am still trying to learn and get better at doing things every single day. So, you know, trying to take that ego out of it was a big shot to be able to go all the way down to 130. But then since then, I've had a very enjoyable time rebuilding a lot of my lifts in yeah. seeing small progress. So all right, now that's where I set my bar. Five second yeah. pause squat, complete bottom, no shoes on. All right, yeah. let's try to build that up a little bit. And you can't you know, go so you, deeper, so it's not exactly, like- Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So now I'm looking at, you know, how long can I hold that? Can I maybe go up to 132 kilos, you know, in yeah. the next couple months, you know? So it's always finding objective measures for sure, but then also seeing subjectively, how do you feel? Like my hips have never felt better. My knees have oh. never felt better. Yeah. You know, so I mean, subjective matters just as much when we're talking longevity, because a lot of times if you only base your uh, your progress on the objective measure of how much is on the bar, you're probably not going to be in the game for a long term because yeah. you're not going to listen to your body and read your body. And I think that's a big thing, too. So understanding that, obviously, when we walk into the weight room, we have the objective measure. And if you're not yeah. using objective measures, sometimes it can get frustrating when you're you're not seeing progress like you want to see because you're you're only basing it off th- certain things so it allows you to maybe create a plan that allows you to you know slowly progress uh, yeah. but we have to call into that subjective manner as well to see and really gauge our body in other areas yeah and, and it's another interesting point of you know i think you just hear this a lot of anecdotally but there is so much noise out there about like deep squats are going to hurt your knees now i have an acl reconstruction i have a meniscus tear i go down really deep and i like it like you, it only it only seems to help if I increase that range of motion and that load in the bottom position. So it's nice to hear that that like you, you're a very experienced lifter. You switched it up to go even deeper and mm-hmm. pause, and you know this has fixed problems rather than added pain. Exactly. I mean, it's all about having movement quality as your highest uh, determinant whenever you're doing a lift, and then from there progressive loading over time yeah. progressive loading isn't one week one week one week getting better 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 you know stronger 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 more load more load more load it's obviously a very wave-like pattern of three steps forward one step back trying different rep schemes out and loading schemes but it's the idea that we want to have quality movement first and yeah. if that's there it allows a proper training program to then create the adaptations that we want to see long term because a proper training program on top of problematic movement long term i think just increases risk of of issues happening right yeah because it never addresses you yeah. know something that's going to be continually exacerbated exactly more loading 
Anything else, Jesus? Yeah, I, I had a quick question, actually, kind of going back to um, squatting barefoot in particular. Um, yep. I saw this tweet that you posted that the, I believe the research and development has spent uh, over a few billion dollars um, doing just obviously, like you said, research on it, and it has nothing to do with function and how, like, how narrow the mm -hmm. shoes are. Do you mind going a little bit in detail with that? Um, yeah. I mean, the, the big thing, that when people look at their shoes, we don't realize that the majority of shoes that we wear nowadays are not designed to fit your foot, but rather to mold your foot into what is considered a fashion favorable shoe. Mm -hmm. And this isn't new. I mean, there's research dating back to looking at back at like, you know, the 15 and 1600s mm -hmm. to where we would look at people within the, uh, the higher classes in the, the world that would use pointy toed shoes to show that their status was high. You know, I mean, you know, narrow toed shoes are nothing new, but the idea is that it, when you're born, your foot, if you look at the foot and I mean, a lot of times if you still have parents that kept things, you know, from when you were young, when you had your, when you're born, they have this like, you know, baby footprint in the, yeah. you know, in the hospital, you know, look at the toes, the toes are the widest part of the foot. Mm -hmm. But yet as we age, we start wearing shoes the shoes pinch the toes together. They're a narrow toe box. And if all of a sudden your foot starts adapting to becoming more narrow and more narrow and more narrow. So things like bunions are not hereditary. They are strictly because of an adaptation to the shoes that people are in. Um, and this leads to a lot of foot issues. It, it decreases risk uh, or it, it decreases your ability to stabilize your foot as it was designed. And the thing is, is that like, when we look at a lot, there's a lot of studies even dating back to the 18 and 1900s that looked at uh, different populations and civilizations around the world that didn't wear shoes. Mm -hmm. And their, their feet look exactly like they did when you were born and the, the toes are very wide. Now, you go to any of those areas nowadays and you look at their feet compared to most of ours in sort of these first world societies and you're like, whoa, their feet are huge. Yeah. Well, no, that's what a human foot should look like, mm -hmm. except, you know, society has always dictated that you know, a narrow foot is somehow slender, it's sexier, it's more uh, appeasing to the eye is the idea. Bamboozled. Exactly. But I mean, you know, think about it like this. You wear a hat that fits your head. You wear shirts that fit your torso and your arms. You wear pants that fit your legs. Yet when we wear shoes, we wear shoes that mold our feet to what we think a foot should look like. So a wide toe box shoe is just a foot shaped shoe. It's a shoe wow. that doesn't do anything to your foot. The more a foot or more a shoe does to your foot, the worse it is for you. And you unfortunately, right. as, I, as I deadlift and stuff like that or squat, like I notice like when I'm really focusing on the balance of my foot, my my toes want to spread in order to bat. Like I notice there's like this activation exactly. of my toes. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm reaching to balance out my foot with my toe. Yep. That's exactly what your toes are designed to do. They're designed to spread out and allow your foot, just like a kickstand, it gives your, your bike a little bit more stability. You know, your foot is designed to spread out, but you can't do that in a lot of shoes. I mean, not to, to hate on very specific brands, but I mean, Nike, Adidas, Reebok, to a point, I mean, Reebok Nanos are much better nowadays, but there's a number of major shoe companies that they spend billions and billions of dollars researching and technologically advancing their shoes in a number of certain ways. But the basic design of a narrow toe box is only there for fashion. There's no research or scientific evidence at all to say that a narrow toe box is better for your foot. Yet, you ask a lot of these designers, and I've talked to to one designer that used to work for Nike before, and he's like, yeah, they, 
they're basically the idea is that no one wants to buy a foot shaped shoe. Right. They don't, they don't yeah. make them. And he actually said, he's like, the more I learned about it, he's like, I had to quit. It's like, I had to, <laughs> I couldn't continue working at a company who was creating footwear that was doing more damage to the foot than good. You know, I mean, you shouldn't, I mean, think about it like this. You have a long day at work, you get done, you get home, you're like, ah, oh, my dogs are barking. You know, my feet are just so sore. Shouldn't be the case, right? Yeah. Your foot is designed to do a lot, but when it's in a bad position all day long, which is how it is held within a lot of Nike shoes and a lot of Reebok and, you know, in a lot of Adidas shoes, like your foot is not going to be able to function properly. Yeah, because it's not the muscles of the feet that, you, that you're saying, like when my dogs are barking, it's not the muscles of the feet that are sore. It's just you feel like they're enclosed, you know, or they're irritated, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we actually see that people's feet get bigger. The muscles hypertrophy and get stronger when you switch to a barefoot shoe. Do you, or a natural foot shoe. Do you um, do you recommend or do you even use the those shoes? I forget what they're called, but I think you've seen them, right? Have you ever used those, or would you rather go barefoot yourself? Well, so it, it first off depends on like where you're at. So oh, I mean, uh, I've seen people wear them in public all the time. I'm like, well, not all the time, so but every the, once in a while. The shoes that I wear, uh, are are we videoing this too, or is it just audio? Uh, we're doing both. We're doing both. Okay, so let me show you. So, got a couple right here. All right, let me get my, my mic back in. So the ones I got on right now, this is the field grounds. Oh, that's clean. You can see how wide this is. Now yeah. the field grounds, this is their, their latest slip on. Um, I mean, wide toe box. I mean, this looks like what? It looks like a van, Yeah, I was right? about to say that, yeah. I mean, this looks like something you can wear out to the bar or going out to a restaurant, yeah. pretty clean. Um, I mean, Vivo Barefoot makes this one. This is more of like a trail running shoe, but oh, again, wow. super wide. Um, I mean, they don't always look very ugly. I mean, some of them are looking a little bit more clean. This is the better. one, uh, this is the Barefoot Athletics Ursus. It's much more of a moccasin type look. Um, this one is particularly tailored more so for power lifters. Mm -hmm. um, the, the owner of the company, uh, Chris Duffin, is a, a very elite power lifter himself uh, from years past. So they gear their uh, shoes more to the to power lifting community. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I only wear right now you know, natural shoes or barefoot shoes. Um, I like a lot of different brands out there. There's there's more and more popping up every single day. But then obviously, like if I'm in a certain situation where I can be barefoot mm -hmm. um, in certain gyms, I mean, I'm going to be barefoot. But I mean, think about the world we live in today. You're not usually going to go out to a restaurant or to a, <laughs> to a supermarket barefoot, right? Yeah. You're going to get kicked out. No shirt, no shoes, no service kind yeah. of thing. So you got to have some shoes to wear. Um, and then, and there's certain gyms, right? You can't go barefoot in certain gyms. So if you're, um, I think it's important to have, have a good pair of shoes, but yeah, those are, I made a YouTube video called for, um, or why you need to wear barefoot shoes. And I think it just shows, I think I presented four different shoes that I like to wear myself. Uh, and it just sort of showed the difference, why they're so important, how a narrow toe box affects the foot structure and the foot's function. I honestly think I'm going to get the first one that you showed us. I was like, oh, those are yeah, clean. the those field are grounds are pretty cool, man. I'll tell you, of all the different ones, uh, the field grounds are the ones that I would say are the most fashion forward. They look, yeah. they sort of look, they've got, they got a, a low top, a high top, and they've got uh, the slip ons. They all sort of look like, like a van sort of chuck. Mm -hmm. 
And you know what's crazy though, when you were talking about um, how how much bigger and thicker like the the feet get, right? When you're always using those. I was in Hawaii uh, about a month ago, and it was crazy how like huge their feet were. And I saw like some of these guys were like climbing like up trees, like almost like they were like jogging or like running. I was like, yeah. holy shit, this is what we're capable of doing. <laughs> I was oh like, yeah. What the fuck? Yep. Yeah, man, it, it's absolutely insane. I'm just like, I, I don't know if you have any speculation on this in particular, but why do you think we damage um, our feet more by condensing them into like a narrow shoe? Do you, you think it's strictly for aesthetic or do you like have any speculation on that by any chance? So as far as like what it does to your feet, uh, first off, it's going to smash your foot into an unnatural yeah. position and your foot adapts to the position that it's being held in. It's like, you know, basically... Um, constricting your foot into a tough position during the day now physiologically what's happening well um for people some people develop plantar fasciitis mm -hmm. um you know basically the reason for that is because the when the big toe is smashing towards the rest of the toes um it actually pulls a muscle called your abductor hallucis tight against the inside part of your foot and constricts blood flow through a very small artery that runs down through that area and strangulates that blood flow where you actually get small uh, parts of your lower foot that die off because the they constricting uh, blood flow limits the ability for it to replenish itself. So you actually get pieces of dead tissue within your foot uh, for some people that have yeah, plantar fasciopathy. Um, it leads to uh, the, the type of shoes that we have can lead to problems like Morton's aroma, um, hammer toes. There's a number of different foot issues that all can stem from improper footwear. What do you think about uh, the gyms that don't allow you to take off your shoes when you're squatting? <laughs> <laughs> Those are not gyms that I ever go to. So uh, <laughs> I would never be in one of those gyms unless no. it was on vacation. I'd be like, all right, well, I'll wear my wide toe box shoes. I got you, got you. Yeah, no, I was just curious, a little side note on that. <laughs> um, another thing that I, that I really wanted to ask you as well um, that I had written down over here was, um, it was, you were talking about stretching something that feels like really tight. Um, and that sometimes like stretching isn't the answer, but it helps improve, uh, well, the answer is improving stability in another area. What's, what are your thoughts and opinions on that? Cause I know a lot of people so that here, always yeah. to always stretch and I'm like, well, there's gotta be, that's like, again, short term solutions, right? Yeah. So first thing we need to understand is that stretching usually creates short term adaptations and improving flexibility, mm -hmm. but we always have to ask, why is this area tight? Mm -hmm. So here's an example. For some people, they have very stiff and tight feeling hip flexors. Now you can stretch your hip flexors and it may feel helpful for a short term, but then the tightness still comes back. Well, oftentimes we find this uh, pattern where people have very stiff and tight hip flexors and under facilitated or under engaged posterior chain, so glutes, hamstrings. So the body is basically relying on the hip flexors and calling upon them to do more work to create that stiffness and stability that the glutes aren't providing for the body whenever it's functioning. So um, while stretching the hip flexors may feel good in the short term, it's not actually leading to long-term changes. That's why they continue to feel tight. Mm -hmm. So for other people, it may just be as simple as doing specific movements to strengthen uh, the glutes, improve their timing and coordination to where they are more dominant and then movement becomes more efficient and then the hip flexor stiffness goes away without ever stretching them got you okay no yeah thank you for that i was just really curious yeah, you're welcome. Little side note um and as to your insight on that uh, i kind of wanted to backpedal to something that we were talking about uh, in the beginning as well um 
kind of just going for that short-term solution, just getting that pain taken care of. Why do you think most physicians and doctors kind of just, they always prescribe something, they're so quick to do that. Do you think it's more for like a higher payout for them or, or, or anything like that? I mean, kind of going even back to COVID and the pandemic, right? It's like, don't fix exactly like your, your health, your eating, your lifestyle. It's, mm -hmm. hey, let's just get the vaccine. Hey, let's just do this and that, right? I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Why do you think we do that as a Yeah, as a I, I think it's, it's a tough situation when it comes to different injuries and, and problems because, um, First and foremost, doctors are not equipped with the time and the educational resources to really give a lot of people these lifestyle long-term changes. I mean, someone comes to me with knee pain, they don't have time to educate them on proper squatting technique and making sure that they're doing all the different things rehabilitation-wise to get you know the, the fix of pain. They have like six minutes, so they you know it's a product of an of a broken system to where medical professionals aren't given the time and adequate. Uh, resources to help people in a holistic manner. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's one thing, and that's also why it's easier sometimes to be like, oh, this hurts, we'll take this pain medication and ice it and stop yeah. doing that and it'll feel better. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's a quick fix sometimes. Uh, also, we have to say that, you know, that's also uh, to a point, certain things are not their specialty. Mm -hmm. You know, a medical doctor is not a specialist in exercise or fitness. So they don't understand rehabilitation many times as far as to the extent of what a physical therapist does. So when someone comes to them with knee pain, they don't understand uh, to, to the extent of a physical therapist, the movement-based system and understanding the connection between how a hip mobility issue could be the exact cause of the knee symptoms that they're feeling. But to be able to take the time to, to uncover that in clinic and prescribe sufficient movement uh, fixes, you know, it's, it's very tough to do when they don't understand it or have the time to do so. So it's a really complicated gray area to be mm -hmm. in. Uh, but I think the more and more education that we put out within the world, both from a consumer standpoint and from a medical standpoint, sort of the practitioner standpoint, I think we're, we're just going to be able to take steps closer to, to giving better care and uh, taking care, better care of our bodies ourselves. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. Um, I think, yeah, I think one of the things that, that I learned from you in particular was just go to someone who practices what they preach go to someone who specializes because why would you go to i think you what did you say i think you said something along the lines of like why are you going to go to like somebody who's like a like an oil mechanic or someone who works at jiffy lube they don't specialize in in so and so you want to go to somebody so that way they can tailor it to your experience to your body uh just to get what mm -hmm. you need in, in particular right yeah i mean i'm a obviously i'm a physical therapist but i also you know i'm very aware of the holes within the physical therapy profession mm -hmm. Um, if I have an athlete down the street that's dealing with knee pain, you know, they need a, depending on what their goals are and things that they're doing. Oh, did I freeze on you guys? Oh, yeah, you but I think now? you're good. You're good. <laughs> All right. So, so basically, you know, if you're an athlete and you're dealing with issues in, in squatting or movement or performance, you know, you want a, you want a practitioner that understands the issues and understands where you need to be, you need to be able to, to see someone mm -hmm. that's going to be able to tailor your rehab to that way. You know, you don't take a Lamborghini to Jiffy Lube, you know? Mm -hmm. No, definitely. Sorry, you kind of froze up on, on us for a little bit, but you're correct. I sorry about I, that. I, I think my computer's about to die, actually. So. Oh, gotcha. I mean, well, we'll wrap this up. Well, how much battery do you have left? <clears throat> about 4%. Okay, well... <laughs> We'll, we'll wrap this up. I just have two more questions. Um, I, I guess okay. I kind of wanted you to give an overview on uh, on this really quick for the people listening for, for your book. Yeah. <laughs> so Rebuilding Milo is basic. Yeah, it's right up here. 
Yeah, so, so rebuilding Milo is basically uh, my gift to the world as far as how I approach physical therapy, how I understand the body, evaluate, treat, and diagnose issue, uh, injuries. And, uh, but it's related in a way to where any, anyone can understand. So if you are fitness-minded in any way, you love going to the gym and working out, um, you know, there's always going to be aches and pains that pop up. One day your back's going to hurt a little bit. You know, the next month your shoulder may ache a little bit. And there's not always great advice from other people on how to go about fixing that. You get some people that say, hey, stop doing that, put some ice on it, and, you know, eventually come back to it. Or some people, you know, will, will give different opinions on how to best go about fixing things. Well, I just wanted to lay out very plainly and very simply how I think people should approach these aches and pains that we get within the gym. And it's laid out uh, sort of chapter by chapter is, is back issue and then knee, hip, you know, shoulder. To where if you're having a back issue, you can turn to chapter one, you can read about how the back becomes injured. You can go through a very simple screening process to uncover your individual cause for pain. And then it gives you very uh, specific exercises based on what you found to help you get out of pain and rebuild a body that's able to tolerate the things that you want to do in life and in the gym. Awesome. I thank you. I thank you really much for that description. And if you haven't already purchased it, go buy it on Amazon, leave a review. Uh, I did. I made sure to go ahead and do that. Um, and then I always I always ask this of my guests as well. Um, what, this is the last question, but what's the, the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Man, the best piece of advice I've ever received. I would say um, go slow before you can go fast. And I think that it applies to so many other avenues in life and not just the gym is, you know, solidify the fundamentals. Don't try to go faster than uh, uh, is necessary. And in turn, you're going to be able to go very fast in the end. It's to solidify the fundamentals first. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Thank you, man. Uh, again, everyone follow him on Squat University, especially on TikTok. Let's go. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> do it. Hey, you guys have a you're very, very welcome. Talk. It was great talking to you, Aaron. Hey, great talking to you guys as well. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. You're